0: Ignition sequence starts. three, two, one lift off. We have a lift
1: off. Welcome back to University everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth existence in the unknown. I'm AJ Perrin, your host. With me, as always, is the other host.
0: Judson Martin, the better host, yeah.
1: The other host. Yeah, better. I think you misheard. Um, Anyway, we're back in the studio after four weeks, and I'm very relaxed to be in here finally. It's nice. I know. And I don't mind doing the virtual ones, except for the fact that Judd was about five seconds behind me. You
0: live in nowhere.
1: It was was my Wi-Fi's fault, but whatever. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about space junk.
0: It's a big deal. Yeah.
1: I was in, I was maybe in your guys' camp if you believed that it wasn't a big problem until about a week ago, uh, which is why we're going to talk about it. But most of the time when we talk about space, we say it's the vast, expansive next frontier. But for the most part, at least in Earth orbits, it's not that way. Instead, it's dangerously cluttered. News first or brain gains first? We could do either. Some news. Some news. Okay. Um, Real quick, I maybe posted on an Instagram story or something a little bit ago about this device called the Rabbit R1, which is a new wearable uh, AI-driven tech. So let's see what notes I had on that.
0: It's just supposed to be like, it's like the size of the pocket square, right? Exactly. It would just
1: pin to the front of your shirt. Or maybe it's, I think it's still supposed to be like handheld. That device, along with a lot of others that have been revealed recently are supposed to be like convincing people that we don't need to interact with our phones as much and instead have like something do all the other tests for us. Could be. But I think that people like interacting with their phones now. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? So like convincing them to not use it and just have somebody else do it, that's
0: not, not not an appeal for a lot of people. I don't really know what you would use it for, I guess. I don't know. Let's get into Let's that see, then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So first of all, the price point, two hundred dollars, uh which is about an eighth of an eighth, a fourth of the price of a new iPhone. So that's pretty impressive. Um, The fourth batch is already sold out, but more are in production and you can pre-order them now. Not sponsored. (coughs) I'm not telling you to go buy it, but in case you're interested. Anyway, on their website, it says Rabbit is a new kind of operating system that combines AI with pocket-sized tech and acts as a portable productivity companion. Um, In case you're wondering what it looks like, probably about a what do you say, do you like two and a half inches by two and a half inches or something like that?
0: Yeah, it's not very big. It's got it's. a
1: small screen on the front and a camera that flips forward and backward. Um, and then it's also got like a little, if you've ever seen an Apple Watch, it's got one of those spinning dial dials. Buttons. Dial button. Yeah, it's a dial button. Um, here's a list of some of the functions. <clears throat> it's got different categories of functions, like these are the ones it's really good at, these are the ones it's working on, these are the experimental functions. The, the ones it's really good at, the optimal ones they say is searching, the internet, playing music, ride-sharing, so like finding a car. Yeah. Food, ordering, I'm guessing it says ordering food, not making food.
0: No, it probably makes it. I yeah. 3D prints it.
1: <laughs> um, Vision, I think that just means its camera can well, use AI stuff, to scan like yeah. the environment.
0: Well, I saw stuff where it could like, if you held something up to it, it was like telling you what it was or something. Oh, I did
1: see that too. It was like a, a handful of cashews and we'll be like, this is how many calories are in this much or stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I don't know. That might be along with the food or I have no clue, but maybe it could be like some sort of, if you have some vision impairments or whatever, it could be like a little companion. Oh, to guide or to describe.
1: Yeah, or like read know. to you. That would be cool, right? You could hold something up to it and it'll read it aloud to you. Um, and then also translation is one of its optimal functions. And then some of the exploratory ones or experimental ones that I thought were cool is travel, just as travel in general. So I'm guessing if you're going to a new country, it can... Tell you about where you are, what to do, what to eat, where to go, transportation, stuff like that. Reservations, I'm surprised that this was an experimental because it can do a ride share optimally, but it can't do reservations. And those are kind of the same thing, but different platforms. You know, like you're reserving a ride share or.
0: Yeah, probably just all on the. S- software side or maybe uber has like partnered with them but sure it does say on the website that the fifth batch is now sold out so you're gonna have to wait till the sixth one
1: that's incredible because i wrote these notes like three days ago anyway um
0: navigation is
1: apparently ex- an experimental feature so don't be asking it for directions
0: yet it's i think it's pretty cool but i don't know again i think this is just the first one and we'll have to see what happens with this ai companion tech as Time goes on.
1: Yeah, I'm not convinced that this is going to take off and become mainstream, but it is uh, cool looking for the time being, like a first kind of gen AI companion yeah. item. Next on the news, we got uh, we're building oxygen with Mars's surface. So the problem with potentially living and working on Mars is that you kind of you only get what you bring with you on the ship, and everything else you have to be able to make there, whether you're like 3D printing out of stuff you brought or whatever. If you, if you need something on Mars and you didn't bring it with you, you have to have a way to make it. And so one of those things that we would definitely need is oxygen because we not only need to burn fuel, but we need to breathe, if you didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Nope, need to breathe. Oh, okay. So we have evidence for liquid water um, under the southern ice caps of Mars, but also under the surface in ice forms. And we know this because of the work that rovers have done there over the past decade or whatever it is yeah and so if we have water the ingredients for water are hydrogen and oxygen so if we can find out a way to take the oxygen out of the water then we have oxygen now there's a team that took ai and fed it samples of mars's surface not physical samples but like what the composition is like here's what this is made out of yeah and they told it to find a catalyst to create a reaction with water to extract the oxygen. And it came up with, I think, like millions of possible combinations, maybe not all that are feasible, but it scanned 243 of these possible catalysts that it made and determined, you know, the best possible combination of elements to create a catalyst that can extract oxygen. You know, on Earth, we could definitely come up with a way, way better Better catalyst for oxygen, but we only have you know the couple elements that are making up Mars's surface to do so. So is it is it pulling the oxygen from the w- water or is it right, pulling yeah. from the Martian soil? Use the soil to create an element that you can mix oh, with the water. Okay. So we're, we're taking element.
0: elements from this Martian soil. Yeah. Okay, creating a so. compound that yeah. we can
1: mix with the water and then get oxygen out of the whole thing. That's cool. Yeah, no, it is uh, cool. And the the best part is this reaction can happen at I think it was down to maybe negative thirty C or something like that. What does that mean? Well, on Mars, it's a lot colder than it is here on Earth, and this reaction can start itself at those lower temperatures without needing to be sustained, right? So we don't have to waste extra energy to keep this reaction going.
0: Yeah, and they had a similar, like they had a way to pr- produce oxygen on the Perseverance rover, right? Yeah. So what was that?
1: Yeah. Um, so on the Perseverance rover, they had this thing called Moxie, uh, which was a instrument that could produce oxygen using the atmosphere at a rate of six grams an hour. Um, which is not a lot. It's about the equivalent of a small tree, but they basically took the carbon dioxide out of the air and compressed it and heated it up really aggressively. And then they got oxygen out of that at a pretty low rate. So they've, they've made other efforts before, but I think this one is especially cool with the catalyst because if you don't know what a catalyst is, it just raises the active or lowers the activation energy of a reaction. Um, and so if you can lower that activation energy, you don't need to support it with other, um, fuel or energy sources
0: i'm just thinking about like h2o versus uh carbon or like carbon dioxide i would think carbon dioxide would be easier to get the oxygen out because hydrogen bonds are like super super strong
1: yeah that that i don't know because the catalyst hasn't been used to do this yet yeah so that would be the next step is to like test how effective it actually is but according to the ai like they have found the most suitable candidate for uh doing this procedure what's next Next, we got the Starlink spacecrafts from NASA Ames, the Ames National Laboratory. Is it Ames National Laboratory? I don't want to get it wrong because they love us over Well, there. no. They the, always
0: DM us on Instagram. Well, NASA Ames is different than the Ames National Lab. Oh, okay. So that's, that's what Ames, I wanted. Yeah. yeah. The Ames National Lab is just on a building on campus for the Department of Energy. Oh,
1: that's why I'm getting co- it confused. Yeah, because that's local. Yeah, no, NASA Ames, um, the Ames Research Center. I think that might be it. Anyway. Sure. NASA Ames was doing a project called the Starling Project on the 18th of the month, January. So that already passed. NASA announced that the spacecraft had completed a major mission objective. They were able to differentiate. These Starling spacecrafts are like um, big rectangles with wings almost, it looks like. You should look up a picture. But they were able to differentiate the empty space in the background from the other spacecraft in the swarm that they're meant to work with. Basically, the whole project is aiming to test technology that will allow groups of spacecraft to operate autonomously, autonomously without any interference from the ground and also enable what's called multi-point data collection. So these spacecraft are going to work together on various missions, and they need to be able to communicate and
0: move with one another uh, without other people piloting them. Is the idea just like to to have multiple satellites in different locations all looking at the same thing and maybe they'll acquire different data so we could
1: yeah yeah and i think it's like if they're moving in a swarm right the first one will collect a point of data and then the second one will pass through the same thing and then we can get the same data point but from different instruments and Mm -hmm. then we can measure uh kind of the completeness of the data or the accuracy of the data right to see how it spans over multiple different readings that are that are close together from different instruments yeah in in manufacturing there's a term called um repeatability and reproducibility so repeatability is like with the same instrument can you take the same measurement and get the same thing right so if i'm i'm the person taking the measurement i use the same tool again like how close will i get just doing it a second time and then there's reproducibility where it's like can a different person come in and do the same thing i just did and get the same thing so even between people it's kind of the same thing here it's like between spacecraft moving on uh to brain gains
0: judd you can start yeah so i got a call from some friends this weekend um just telling me to go outside and go look outside because they had seen something they didn't know what it was and it was it was light pillars they thought it was like the aurora borealis and i had to go out and tell them no it's not that cool it's still really cool but light pillars Do you
1: see it with your naked eye yeah Oh, okay
0: so basically light pillars are these it's really cool they're these like parallel lines that like go from the ground up to the sky um that are just caused by essentially street lights in the right conditions or or any just bright lights on the ground in this in the right conditions where this will happen during winter where snow crystals are in the air but they haven't like formed into snowflakes i guess um, so they're just
1: like reflecting the light yeah they're yeah. basically
0: f- reflecting the light but they're just these series of like parallel lines that line up the sky it was really cool i got a great picture of it maybe we'll post it on the instagram but yeah they were some interesting things and i didn't know what they were at first so i had to look it up but nice
1: my my brain gains is that um i found out that cordless power tools right like a milwaukee or a or a dewalt or something like that you know what i'm talking about maybe it's a drill maybe it's a impact driver or something like that those were invented by nasa to be used outside of the international space station or on satellites because when you're in space you can't plug in a cord obviously so they had to come up with ways to bring energy outside the space station so before that it was just corded power tools and then the first time they were ever introduced it was not on the ground it was in space and then it was like made normal here on here on earth they don't just have like
0: the normal outlets in the space station?
1: I guess not outside the space station. Somebody, maybe that was some oversight is that they didn't think about, they're like, oh, you know, they finished the whole construction of it. And then the first guy gets outside to do some work and he's like, oh, so where's the like the outlet? You know, <laughs> he's like, oh, okay.
0: And there you go. That's how you know that like some people say space exploration and research is useless, but that's why you yeah, got your cordless power tools
1: Exactly. You wouldn't have cordless power tools without NASA. So there's your tax dollars right back. Okay. Let's jump right into space junk. Now, we're going to start by talking about where it comes from. Is that a good place to start, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, in this is from the European Space Agency. They say within 60 years of space activity, so if we're thinking that that's from like 2020, we're talking about like back to the 60s, right? So, we've had just over 6,000 launches from the ground, which has resulted wow. in over 56,000 objects put into orbit. Now, not everything stays in orbit forever, so this means that um, only about half of these things are still in orbit, um, but right now, global surveillance networks such as European Space Agency's Debris Office or the United, space, the United States Space Surveillance Network, they track about 30,000 objects that are still in space. So out of those 56,000 objects that have been launched, um, about half of them are still up there, and we're tracking about 30,000. But the interesting piece of this is that That's not just 30,000 satellites, because as of September last year, only 9,000 of them are satellites. This means that, Judd, it's made up of a lot of pieces of stuff. 30,000 objects we're tracking, but only 9,000 of them are satellites. They have to come from other sources, like the most important ones that we'll talk about on this episode are collisions and explosions, essentially. And so those two events have caused space junk to radically spiral out of control. At this point, all the mass of the space junk in space adds up to about 1,100 tons. Besides the amount that are satellites, the rest is usually upper stages of rocket-related objects, or the other, the other big portion comes from, like I said, 600 in-orbit fragmentation events in the last 60 years, including collisions and explosions. Now, collisions right now are incredibly infrequent but as space travel picks up even more and more steam collisions are expected to dominate in the future
0: 600 is a lot i did not think it would be that high it says 630 since 1961 there's been 630 events um 42 percent of those events have come from china uh just under 30 percent have come from the usa and 25 percent from russia and those are like the yeah the space vehicles that were responsible for those events. but
1: the the interesting thing is that so we're tracking thirty thousand objects, but we can't track every object because not all objects are sized enough to be trackable. So now we're looking at a population of ninety thousand objects that are greater than just one centimeter. so are are already you can start to see how we're kind of filling up the sky. But when we start to think about things that are even less than a centimeter, which is very easy to make when you're colliding and exploding and stuff like that, we're already reaching into the trillions of objects.
0: That's a lot of objects.
1: I know. I I would like to point out that a lot of these objects, if we're talking about trillions, clearly a lot of them have to be in some subcritical size where they just don't matter at all. Um, But a large portion of these objects are super small and still super dangerous. So let's talk about maybe the explosions first, and and how those happen. Rockets, when they launch, they have different stages that will like detach right yeah. during
0: if, the course of the, of the exit, right? Yeah. The idea is if so you have a fuel tank, and then you run out of fuel in that tank, you want to shed the fuel tank because that'll yeah. make you lighter and easier to escape the atmosphere or the gravity.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately. Not always is the fuel completely disposed of, so there can be some residual fuel that still sits in the upper rocket stages along with other energy sources and If this is exposed to the whims of space over time, um the space can degrade the parts um which can lead to things mixing that aren't supposed to mix, and then big explosions like we've seen in the past
0: are these like so when you're saying explosions, are you saying these? upper stages of rockets, like somehow the fuel maybe ignites and then it explodes. the tank. Right. Okay. Right. I didn't. I have never heard of
1: it. Yeah. Tank. Actually, I, I hadn't either. But apparently a big problem is making sure all the fuel is disposed of once it um, detaches, because with enough time, some bad things can mix and it can still explode. Right. A big problem is people that are launching the rockets not having a plan to dispose of them. So that's kind of the the way that explosions cause problems. But then collisions are also really, really dangerous when it comes to creating space junk, right? Creating this disparity between the 30,000 objects we can track in the tens and tens of thousands and millions of more objects that we can't track, the dangerous ones, right? Right. It um it almost reminds me of the episode we were, th- we last had, the asteroid episode, where some asteroids we can track but most of the other ones are just too hard to spot and too hard to follow along a path for us to be able to make meaningful predictions out of them.
0: Yeah, and if we're having trouble, you know, viewing asteroids that are only maybe a couple meters across, imagine when we get down to the centimeter scale. And sure, they're closer to Earth, but yeah. still still very difficult.
1: Yeah. So, like I said, collisions are a big problem. One of the most notable collisions in the past was an anti-satellite test Um, conducted by China. So past satellite interceptions by missiles are a huge part or a huge contributor to space junk. This specific example was when a ballistic missile known as the SC-19 was launched at a Chinese meteorological satellite known as the FY-1C as part of this anti-satellite test. The missile's payload weighed 600 kilograms and the collision with the satellite had a relative velocity of over 20,000 miles an hour. The crazy part is, right, This missile had no explosives on it. It was what's known as a KKV, a kinetic kill vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just two objects hitting each other so hard that they effectively turn to liquid and pass right through each other. That's how hard they hit each other and how much energy was distributed. And this created an entire ring of debris spanning the orbit of that meteorological satellite. And three years later, the debris from this ring had spread out to cover nearly all of low Earth orbit and increased the count of trackable space objects by 25%. So you see that picture you're looking at right there? Like that's the ring it created at first, and then three years later, that debris um, had spread out to cover all of low Earth orbit. Can you imagine how many we were counting before that test in 2007 and now afterwards? Like that's just a huge um, increase in the work that we have to do to keep all our other satellites safe. Now, roughly two thirds of the payloads in Earth pass through the area affected by the debris from this collision meaning nasa has to make occasional maneuvers of satellites and spacecraft to avoid possible collisions with the stuff from this event yeah and data analysis shows that 79 percent of the debris will remain in orbit until the year 2100 so nearly most of the debris is still going to be here for at least
0: 100 years at the end of the day like a lot of this as as long as it's in low earth orbit a lot of the stuff kind of like you're saying, will end up coming back down. But, yeah, like you said, it's it's going to take a long time for those yeah. objects to slow down over time because an object in orbit doesn't, unless it's in a specific spot, it's it's going to slow lose energy over time. Or even most locations will lose energy over time, so they have to, for example, like the satellites that we want to keep up there, we have to burn a little bit to either send them a little higher up so that yeah. can, it's okay for them to float back down or we speed them up a little bit.
1: Yeah, because yeah, so, like you said, it's like, in the upper atmosphere, aka the lower Earth orbits, there's they still get slowed down because there's still atmosphere up there. It takes them a long time, but that yeah. drag adds up eventually, um, which slows them down. So yeah.
0: And that drag is something that we'll talk about later when we talk about ways to maybe start getting rid of this this yeah. junk.
1: I thought um, what was interesting about the the collision with the meteorological satellite. It's like where was the lack of oversight where somebody just said let's just absolutely obliterate this satellite. And, and I can't help but think this, if you look it up, the F1YC satellite, the one they hit, had only been in orbit for a couple of years. So it's like, it really, in my opinion, hadn't gotten its full use, you know? Like, why destroy a satellite that quickly after you launch it? And well, it makes yeah. me feel like they had been planning to hit that satellite when they launched it in the first place. You I'm know? sure they did. I mean, yeah. was the
0: whole point of this is that they want to test their their military capabilities, and so yeah. that's... Yeah, there's nothing that another country can really do to stop a country from launching a missile like this unless they intercept that missile.
1: Because this was the first time I'd heard about um, or learned about missiles that are specifically designed to intercept other things, and so they have these these KKVs on them where it's not supposed to explode. It's just supposed to, like, crush it and obliterate it immediately, which is a- another cool thing because you need to make sure you're right on target so you can just tear right through it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, there's other sources of space junk besides the collisions and the explosions. A couple notable ones are um, when solid rocket motors fire, um, obviously it's solid fuel, so pieces of slag and little tiny debris can uh, come off of these explosions. Another thing is if there's coatings and paint on the outside of spacecraft, these can flake off over time from either collisions with other dust or ultraviolet radiation, and so you know you know you're thinking just little flakes of paint and specks of coating or whatever that's not a big deal but it really ends up being a a problem because that's why NASA has to design their spacecraft to withstand these these oncoming collisions um
0: and i guess maybe this falls under the news category but a couple of days ago there was a like a meteoroid that burned up over um i think it was germany it was like got pretty close to the ground or pretty low in the atmosphere before it was completely burned up so like the city could see the, the streak across the sky did they have nice. a
1: uh, like a shockwave like that other one we talked about last
0: episode i don't know actually i just saw the video of someone recorded though
1: that's good timing because we just came out with that episode yeah and now you can you can go listen and understand why judd said meteoroid and not yeah. meteorite yeah. good vocab by the way you were you were correct you used the right I'm word on top of it i know There's also non-man-made objects that we have to account for that that counts, kind of falls in the space debris category, which is what's known as the sporadic meteoroid environment. Um, Kind of hard to explain, but basically it refers, the sporadic meteoroid environment refers to the existence of numerous random meteors uh, and meteor particles, from comets and asteroids just floating out there in space. The, the particles are frequent enough to pose a threat to spacecraft, which means they have to be designed in order to withstand these or dodge them if they're incoming. So NASA has a model that they call the Meteoroid Engineering Model, to capture the environment for uh, Earth orbit, lunar orbit, and interplanetary space. So the three things we're interested in. The model kind of predicts based on gravitational effects and shielding effects from planets and whatnot, how many meteoroid particles they expect to be floating in the area, um, and then therefore how much they have to account for and how much shielding they need and and whatnot. So there's this predicted flux of meteoroid particles that are designed for depending on where the spacecraft is going. Um, I know it's supposed to provide information as to how much how many impacts they can expect yeah okay um anyway so now that we've talked about where space junk comes from right to recap collisions explosions meteoroid particles um and then in general just satellites and other objects that we're tracking right now whether they're active or inactive satellites this combines for a a shit ton of stuff that we have to watch out for when we're flying around but now we should talk about you know space is pretty big but why is it actually a problem that that this stuff exists. So
0: To kind of put it into perspective, a two-centimeter diameter ball traveling in orbit would be traveling around 17,000 miles per hour. Yeah. And that has the same kinetic energy as a Jeep Wrangler going 70 miles an hour.
1: Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever been hit by a Jeep Wrangler going 70 miles an hour... It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good, yeah. So um, I'd be avoiding these two-centimeter balls as much as possible. Right. right. And
0: imagine, I mean, the energy just... It, increases linearly as you you know add mass or size to these objects so or add mass add speed right yeah if in- increasing mass or speed
1: think about the size of the ballistic missile we were talking about probably a little bit bigger than two centimeters right, right. so how does that imagine how that energy is going to scale up when it collides with another satellite
0: obviously a lot of energy enough to like you said melt melt straight through yeah. each yeah
1: Anyway, so space junk is a pretty big problem. There is a we should know, like just for completeness' sake, there is a pretty there there is a little bit of a balancing act that happens with space junk. So, um, if it's in, like Judge said, if it's in lower orbit, it can get pulled back down to the surface and burn up in our atmosphere. That's good. Or if it's in really high or- orbits, um, and they stop using them or whatever they can get pulled out of orbit by lunar gravitational effects or solar gravitational effects um, over time, so be lost out of Earth's orbit. Those two events are ways that we lose space junk, but there are certain altitude and latitude levels where the debris getting in and staying there um, is way more common, right? Mm -hmm. So places where this just isn't going to happen. Certain certain orbital levels and certain um, latitudes from the Earth where that space junk doesn't have that balancing act, and it's going to stay there, and they're going to become incredibly populated. There's also geostationary orbits, which I learned about, which is basically which orbit in the same direction as the rotation of the Earth at the same relative speed, meaning on the ground they look stationary. It kind of self-explanatory by the name, but this occurs at altitudes at like 20,000 miles plus, um so really, really far out there we can have these geostationary satellites that are moving with the Earth. And I thought I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: If if you're in two different cars, you know, you're going in your car and there's a car next to you and you're both going forty miles an hour, to you it's gonna look like that car is not moving.
1: Okay. So like we said, there are certain orbits and certain latitudes where space junk is gonna get there and stay there. And now if we doubled the amount of objects that were in these areas in space, we won't just double the collision probability, right? There's not twice as many objects, twice as many collisions. There's going to be quadruple the amount of collisions. And so this is a situation that kind of snowballs. Collisions are eventually going to be the thing that dominate. And you can kind of see how this is going to happen because as things collide more, more objects are made. And then, like I said, it's not going to double the probability. It's just going to start increasing exponentially. This self-sustaining increase in collisions is what's known as the Kessler syndrome. And it's agreed between space agencies that this is something we need to avoid at all costs. And it basically says that, predicted by Donald Kessler, it says that um, there's a future where space is just filled with dangerous objects in, all encom- in an all-encompassing cloud of particles that have occurred from this, um, these collisions over time. Yeah, so who knows? Maybe nothing could exist at a certain period without running into any debris, and so we just can't even launch stuff into space um, because we've trapped ourselves in from our own junk, right? Yeah. So a well, little scary. That is pretty scary. Okay, guys, we're going to be back to talk about how we're going to track and how we're going to solve the issues that are arising from all this Junk. Junk. <laughs>
0: Welcome back from the break, everybody. So we've talked about where the space junk comes from, why it's a problem, and now we're going to talk about how we are tracking these these objects that we can track that are you know of a certain size. AJ, can we track this stuff easily?
1: The short answer, Judd, is no. And that's because, let's think about asteroids for a second. We talked about that last episode. If you thought it seemed hard to track asteroids, these objects may be closer, but they are
0: incredibly small 100 kilometers up in space and it's only two centimeters you know traveling
1: at 17,000 miles an hour yeah even with some
0: of our best telescopes you know how are we able to to track this stuff but there is a couple people obviously doing this Um, one would be the department of defense Um, and this I think this responsibility I was just reading that this responsibility was maybe getting passed over to a different agency. But anyways, the yeah. Department of Defense has a series of telescopes um, which are just devoted to tracking these objects. In order to add the – well, they have a catalog of all these objects. Um, and they're usually try to track down or trace down these objects all the way back to the launch that they came from. And how they're able to do that, I don't really know. It's pretty impressive. Man
1: once they track the object, that's not even where the job ends. They're like, if we can't find out where... The, they're more interested in finding out where it came from. Right. But I think that makes sense from the Department of Defense because they want to know, like, they want to catalog the sources of these issues so they can track down, you know, what is the thing that we need to mitigate the most.
0: Even if a spacecraft has even a 1% chance that it's going to be hit by any of these, these objects, they're going to correct its um, trajectory and its orbit to make sure that there's no collisions that occur.
1: That I also, I also thought was interesting, but maybe just makes sense because like you said, they don't want to be the next collision that adds 25% more trackable objects to space. So they take this like incredibly seriously. Like if any of their models are saying we might get hit, they need to do something about it, right? They don't take no chances.
0: This is obviously all really complex stuff, but thinking about, okay, we're going to move this uh, satellite's trajectory by one degree this way. And right. so now we need to check, okay, is it going to run into any other space junk? Is it going to run into any of the meteors we're tracking? Is it going to run into a planned launch that we have next week? Yeah. So they have to look at all of this stuff. And so I'm sure there's some very strong supercomputers just looking at the best way to change the orbit. And these events have to be planned um, probably weeks in advance before that kind of correction can be made.
1: Now, the Department of Defense does this through its uh, series of telescopes, right? But they can only track things that are larger than 10 centimeters. So just thinking about how many objects we can't track uh, means that even when we're making corrections to avoid the 1% chance of a collision, there is a whole field, a whole background of small objects that
0: we are in the dark about. And like you said, uh, we kind of know, maybe we know some of those areas where there might be more populated, but... It's still just kind of a game of chance. Speaking of a
1: game of chance, there have been some events in the past uh, where some issues have come up from this
0: space junk, right? Yeah. I mean, one of them that was really close but didn't actually happen was in June of 2011. There was uh, an incident with the ISS where we were tracking an object that was going to come dangerously close. We didn't know how close at the time because this was an object that we actually weren't tracking from the ground, it was one that the ISS's own, like, kind of defense systems had picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't have much time at all. We only, they knew that it was coming about like at 20 minutes in advance. So Whoa. the astronauts heard about it and they ran down to the Russian Soyuz capsule, which if you've listened to our ISS episode, you know that that's kind of like the home base and it's also like the life raft, um, on the ISS. So if anything's going to happen, all the astronauts rush down there and they jump can, ship basically. Yeah. They can detach and, and come back to earth if, if there's ever an emergency. So this object ended up passing within a football field of the space station. So that's and we're when we're looking at the scale of um, space, that's pretty freaking close. Um, yeah, no kidding. So they just kind of sat and waited and they were, you know, fearing for their life and things like that. So it was definitely a scary experience for them. But.
1: And I guess you wouldn't know if it's going to hit the capsule you're sitting in right now, too, you know? Yeah. Or if the comp- components to detach the Soyuz capsule from the rest of the space station is going to work properly once this collision happens or whatever. Right. And And you don't see it coming, at least not with your naked
0: eye, because these are traveling too fast. Too fast. And this was probably very small because it was one that they weren't tracking from the ground. So another kind of maybe more funny story. So normally the SpaceX has a lot of these launches and their fairings um, normally come down in the ocean somewhere. And two two people that were vacationing in the Bahamas had located one of these that it had came up on shore. And so... They found there was actually a GoPro inside of the fairing because if one of these ever recovered, I guess Elon wanted some footage of it. And they posted yeah. it uh, on Twitter, and then Elon rep- responded to them asking to get that GoPro back and all this funny stuff. So it was kind of a big thing on Twitter um, back when that happened. Huh. So this wasn't actually
1: I would have ransomed that for so much— yeah, and unbelievable. I mean, now he knows your name and stuff, and it's not your property, and he can sue you. But like,
0: well, there's interesting laws. I think. Well, we talked about what happens with the meteor, uh, oh, the meteoroids yeah. that come down to Earth. This is sort of a similar issue where it's like, if this comes down and you find it, or it lands on your land, who's, who's yeah. actually is it?
1: I know when Skylab came down, um, the that's the first U.S. space station. Right when Skylab came down, NASA was like, if you find a piece of it, we'll give you money and we'll put it in a museum. Um, so they were they were really interested in getting that kind of stuff back. And that's another opportunity to make, make a little dough. But yeah. people were definitely trying to fake it, so they had to, like, check every piece to, you know, yeah. see if it's legit.
0: Another incident in the 70s, a Russian nuclear satellite, um, so that's a big deal, came crashing down to Earth along with its 50 kilograms of enriched uranium fuel on board. Pretty scary stuff, deadly stuff. So this junk uh, got scattered all across northern Canada, and Canada ended up having to spend... Six million dollars to recover like all of the the pieces and fragments of this satellite because they wanted to make sure they got it all because they didn't want uranium just sitting around. Uh, they spent six million dollars recovering it all, and they billed that six million to the Soviets because this was their their satellite that had failed and all that. And the Soviets only paid back half of the bill, and so this is like one of the only times where a country sent a bill to another country for for like their cleanup, I guess. And so it was kind of interesting, but.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining that check like coming in the mid. Like, who does that? Who sends that to who? You know, do you just address that to the country of Russia and be like, you guys have to figure out a way to get rid of this?
0: I guess so. I don't know. I don't know the international banking situation, but
1: so we've got some other fun facts. Just from the last couple bit, we've uh, or. Last couple bits we haven't gotten to talk about yet. The first being Judd alluded to this. The first ever crash or collision uh, between satellites was between a private American satellite named Iridium 33 and a Russian military satellite, Cosmos 2251, which collided at about 27,000 miles an hour and 2,300 trackable fragments were generated. So this is almost like almost comparable to the Chinese ballistic missile te- test, um, is this first crash that ever happened. And I'm just imagining both parties on either end of this collision just being like dumbfounded because this is like the first of its kind and maybe at this point people aren't thinking about collisions being that big of a problem in the first place or even that uh likely of a of a thing but here's another piece last year the fcc federal communications commission issued the first ever fine for space junk against the dish network right so dish does the satellite tv they had left a retired satellite in orbit um without getting rid of it which went against the satellite's license because you have to get rid of satellites after their useful lifetime after 25 years. We said earlier it's the Department of Defense's job in the US to take care of space debris, but the FCC, you know, after this, they really started to make public their interest in taking over that job because they are extremely passionate ag- about getting people to take care of their satellites. And they actually want to reduce that time from 25 years after a mission's life cycle to five. But I think maybe they just want to make their job a little more relevant since nobody's watching satellite TV anymore, or cable TV for that matter, is they just have nothing else to do. So they're like, we're going to be the space police now, I guess. <laughs> do you have some other things, right?
0: Yeah. So some other interesting, I think we have some facts on some interesting um, pieces of space debris out there. One was uh, just an astronaut's tool bag, which floated away during a spacewalk. And this was before, uh, or this is why nowadays all this stuff gets tethered down to the to the spacecraft while astronauts are working out there. But an astronaut kind of lost track of his tool bag and it, it floated away. And so that's floating around up in space. There's we this probably a cordless that, drill. Yeah,
1: we should find that video and post it because you've seen it, right? You've seen like, yeah. as he's like reaching for it, as he's like, oh, yeah,
0: okay. Before um, urine recycling systems were put on place on the ISS, um, we were just dumping astronaut pee out there. And so when they would first release it out, it would instantly freeze, obviously, in the in the cold of space. And so it would become shiny and it would reflect the sun's light. And so there's just these shiny pee clouds floating around, um, around the Earth. So if you ever find one of those, have some astronaut DNA, I guess. I don't know.
1: Yeah, until it melts in your hand when you bring it down to Earth and you're like, I don't know what to do with this.
0: Now your hands are... Urine covered and sticky. Anyways, we've all
1: been there, you know, <laughs> haven't we? Though, just hands covered in piss. Yep. Yeah. Sometimes. My mornings. <laughs> um. Anyway, so another here's another piece is that most communication satellites operate at twenty two thousand miles, but most of them are in geostationary orbit because if you're a satellite that is supposed to send and receive signals to a certain part of the globe, then it wouldn't be helpful if you spun around to the other side of the globe, right? So you have to stay. Stay in position here, there. But when they're done, instead of coming back down to Earth, it's easier to push them into a graveyard orbit. Oh, Judd, I'm reading your part. I forgot what it's my part. colors. Damn, it's okay. I get I got mixed up on the colors. But well, yeah, hey, you're doing a good job. Okay, good. Yeah, but they get pushed into graveyard orbit essentially because it's much easier than sending them down. It's just to push them away where where they will hopefully never harm another piece of spacecraft.
0: We're putting it in that junk drawer. You know, everybody's got the junk drawer in their house where it's got all the junk. Yeah. Like the space junk, you know? It's, yeah. You just, I don't know where this goes. I found it on the counter. I'm going to throw it in the junk drawer. Yeah. So that's so, the graveyard orbit. Essentially. That's the graveyard orbit.
1: I think I know why I was so excited to read your part is because the next fact I thought was funny, which is that Gene Roddenberry, um, who was a screenwriter for Star Trek, the Star Trek series is, um, anyway, a capsule of his ashes about, about the size of like a chapstick um, were put into orbit sometime in the 2000s above one of the space shuttle missions. And I was just thinking here, like, can you imagine if that untracked object, right, that was about to collide with the ISS, was Gene Roddenberry from the grave, just, like, orbiting and getting ready to collide with the with the space station?
0: Yeah, I mean, he's a pretty lucky guy to be able to send his ashes up there. Yeah. Um, there was, there is I mean, an opportunity. I mean, he's dead, so I don't know about <laughs> that. I but. mean, he... Still, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean,
1: like some people... It's a cooler place to be than most people get to end up. Yeah. Some
0: people, you know, it's like the movie scene where you push your ashes out on a boat into the river or you dump them on a you mountain. You push
1: your ashes out onto the
0: river? Someone pushes you push a your dead own... person's... Yeah. Well, you could. I mean, you faked your death or something. I don't know. Yeah, okay. um, <laughs> But anyways, there is a cool opportunity to get... Um, not, n- not your ashes, but your name sent out into space. Oh, um, yeah. With NASA Ames. So... They
1: DM'd us about this. I told you guys they love us.
0: Yeah. So the NASA Ames uh, Research Center is putting people's names on the the new Viper rover, which is going to the moon, um, and it's gonna do stuff. Well, oh, we were talking about Mars water, but they're looking for um, moon water and things like that. So yeah, you can get your name sent up to space. Go um, to NASA's website. Just look up the uh, Viper rover, and I'm sure you'll it'll come up. So it's pretty yeah. cool stuff.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think we're already signed up for that, right? University's going to space. I signed up my own name.
0: You didn't sign up
1: like our our podcast. No, it said first and last oh, okay. name. Oh, well, we don't have a last university name, podcast. I don't know. Um, yeah, you can okay. go ahead and do that, but I wanted to send. Judson what if Martin, you took you know? the one last spot that I was going to jump on? That's too bad. No, there's
0: still more spots.
1: Um. Anyway, what are the possible solutions to space junk? That's really what we have to talk about now, because we've done two things: which is one, convince people that that is everywhere, and to convince it that we can't track it and it's just going to get worse. So let's tell them why this might not be the case. So essentially, the whole process of getting rid of space junk takes two processes. It's mitigation and remediation. Mitigation being removing or limiting the amount of trash you're putting out there, and remediation, getting rid of the harmful trash that is already there. So essentially, the people who launch the rockets and satellites need to have a better plan to get rid of their stuff when it's done with its useful life. Um, and then also we need to develop some methods to capture this stuff, but there are some suggestions just from an opinion piece I was reading that was saying we need to have actual rules about venting this fuel, right? That remaining fuel that was causing, um, rocket stages to explode. We need to have rules about that. Um, we need to, so I said earlier, I think that anti-satellite tests were being banned. I was wrong. I was saying people are looking to ban these, uh, destructive Tests and then we also have to focus efforts to repair and repurpose the satellites, essentially recycle them rather than just getting rid of them. Or you know, once it's used up, we send another one to replace it.
0: There's portions of satellites which you know are made of pretty um, crazy materials that it'd be very difficult to burn up in the atmosphere, and and so we got to be careful of you know when those come down, you know where are we sending them over the ocean and whatnot, and then also just like if we're able to. You know, reuse, reduce, recycle, that sort of thing. If we to reuse it, that works.
1: Let's see. So there's other people, there's people actually working on s- explicit solutions uh, for making satellites less harmful in general. The first is that NASA and Japan have teamed up um, to explore wooden satellites. So NASA's trying to make wooden satellites um, to reduce the amount of harmful metal particles, which persist after the object burns up in the atmosphere or while it's burning up or during its useful lifetime as coating flakes off, essentially. So um, they tested a bunch of different types. Uh, they're called, let's see, Ermine's Birch, Japanese Cherry, and Magnolia, which were brought up to the ISS. So here's some ISS research, right? We were talking about cool ISS research a couple weeks ago, and they exposed them outside of the station to space. Actually, the interesting thing is that after almost a year, there were no measurable changes in mass, meaning it didn't Shed any of its stuff, and it wasn't showing signs of decomposition or rot, um, which makes sense though, because if there's no oxygen in space, it can't burn up, and if there's no oxygen in space, it can't rot.
0: Seems to me like we're going backwards here, you know, because if you're playing like Minecraft or something, you start with your wood and tools, and then you go stone tools. Yeah, you ditch the wood after a certain period. Yeah, and then you know, where are our netherite satellites? I'm a little confused. Or our diamond satellites? You know, I think. We're going backwards here. No, oh. I just think we need to, you know, prepare for the Ender Dragon.
1: I know. You really thought that was awesome. Yeah, it was really good. Anyways. Um, <laughs> wood could also mean better electromagnetic wave signals. So on satellites, there's all these instruments, and they have to be designed so that the metal pieces that are framing the satellite aren't interfering with the instrument's abilities to send and receive signals. But if it's made of wood, then it doesn't matter. Um where the wood is positioned, because the electromagnetic signals can penetrate the wood. So yeah, I mean, I know Pause. this. What? What? Penetrate the wood. All right. The um another example is the the ESA is making a spacecraft that's kind of like, a, or maybe it's a satellite. It's kind of like a Venus flytrap. So it's supposed to as satellites that are useless now whiz past it's supposed to catch it how they're going to catch a satellite when the whole point is that when things collide in space they just completely obliterate one another um, is beyond me but that's going to be uh, pretty cool once that gets implemented and then for a historical example there's a guy named fred whipple who was an astronomer from harvard in the in the 40s he came up with the idea for the whipple shield which is basically a big metal bumper Um, which is typically made of aluminum that's supposed to absorb the initial shock of any impact. And then the projectile, once it smashes into that first shield, is dissipated and the energy is lost and it can be scattered across the outside of the spacecraft wall rather than uh, just in one single pinpointed area. And these Whipple shields are actually used. There's like, I think, a hundred or hundreds of Whipple shields surrounding the ISS right now. So.
0: Yeah, and I was I kind of read into one more or maybe it's the same one that you talked about from the European Space Agency. Um where I, I think they're different. I think they're different. It could be, but this one like used a they used a net to to capture a satellite um and then kind of like pulled it down. This was a European Space Agency. Is that satellite. a real video?
1: Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: Um so the idea would be to to capture um kind of something and then send it back down with us to Earth. Because that would be, you know, if you're going to go outside or if you want to catch a butterfly, you're going to get a net. So satellite kind of looks like a butterfly a little bit. You know, it's got solar array wings. So maybe you want to use a net. I don't know. And
1: you can use the – if you don't destroy the spacecraft when you catch it, then you can reuse a lot of it. there's
0: potential for for reusing it too. Awesome.
1: What about some of the methods that we're using to intercept satellites or space junk that – um maybe are more of a futuristic approach so that we aren't quite there yet.
0: Yeah, so some theoretical or proposed solutions. Um, yeah, so the Japanese Airspace Exploration Agency proposed the Terminator Tether, which is a long-conducting tether, um, which is like, so they'll shoot out a wire, and then they'll send current through that wire, um, which kind of acts as, I, ha- I wrote here it acts as a net, but it really doesn't. It kind of acts more like a magnet. Um, yeah. So it'll kind of slow down any... Uh, Sort of objects that passes
1: through the conductive field, right? Yeah, sort of yeah.
0: be slowed down by this, and so it's like, like a magnetic said, break. Yeah, so yeah. it'll slow it down, and then hopefully have it burn up in the atmosphere. So that one was right. pretty cool. It'd be the best way to clean up those really small um, things that we talked about because we're not going to use a whole net to capture something that's too. And we might not be
1: able to because they might just pass through. And it's too small.
0: Yeah, yeah. So finally. Um, There's been one other kind of... This one might be the coolest one um, for some people. would be shooting the debris with lasers. Shooting lasers at spacecraft sounds pretty Star Wars-y to me. So that's my proposed... That's what I want to see.
1: A lot of people think the solution is just like vaporizing with lasers from the ground, right? But the point of the lasers, like you said, Judd, is not to... um, Vaporize it, yeah. Not to vaporize it. Mainly just to slow it down. Exactly.
0: You can't really... In space, it's, stuff is just going to fragment or it's going to turn into a gas. Exactly. And you can't ever Vaporizing really destroy it is,
1: something. Yeah, and even if, even if we had a laser that could just turn everything into gas instantly, those particles don't just disappear. Right. They'd reappear as solid particles eventually and cause more issues. So everything that we do in terms of trying to solve space junk has to be either catching or slowing something down. There is no yeah. blow it up. Either has to blow it up to is Earth. the problem. Right. Return
0: to Earth or send it out in deep space or whatever. Yeah, so.
1: exactly. But anyway, Judd, do you have anything else? No. So that will bring us to the end of the episode. We've explored why space junk or how space junk appears, why it's a problem, how unfortunately little we're able to track it, and then what we're going to do about it. So it's up to some interesting engineering to to solve this issue so we don't run into the uh, Kessler syndrome and just make our skies unflyable for the
0: future. Yeah. Because that would be
1: unfortunate as so.
0: As we increase the amount of things we have to look at, it, it makes it harder to conduct our duties in, or our missions in space. And that's, you know, we want to keep doing that. We keep exploring. So
1: what is from up? The, the guy says something is out there. The wilderness is out there. Uh, Adventure is out there. Adventure is out there. I thought it was more deep than that or something, but yeah. Adventure is it's out pretty there. Pretty profound, really. Yeah. if you, It's the simple and short things that really are the most important Through Aristotle, that's,
0: yeah. that's insightful.
1: Now we've got to move on to our listener shout-out, guys, um, because we've reached the end of the episode. So I just want to give a huge shout-out to Sarah Fleming from Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks so much for listening. She says, love the podcast. Judson is my favorite, which is crazy. Do you yes, know who that is? I do. See, that's not even fair, right? <laughs> All right. Um, but anyway, thanks for listening. She says, pick me. I'm really funny sometimes. So she didn't tell a joke and she didn't make me laugh. She made Judson laugh. She's not so that she, funny. Yeah, she might it must not be that funny. Thanks for tuning in and hope you're doing good with whatever has got you uh, busy these days. Anyway... So if you're like Sarah and are an amazing fan of the show um, and you're looking to elevate your university experience and become involved, now's your chance because right now uh, we've got our Patreon up and it's got benefits like no other. If you're listening to university, now you can watch it too and get the episodes before anyone Plus, you can let your voice be heard by um, putting up Q&A questions to be answered live on air and voting on future episodes as well. Um, If you really want to feel in on the action, we've got live streams while we're recording, so you can join us in the studio. And there's tons more I can't even name. We're talking merchandise, discounts, subscriber-only content, free merch drawings. It's all there on the Elevated Patreon experience. So check out the link in the episode description or on our link tree on our Instagram or wherever and join us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lots of cool stuff on there. So Just stay excited about the Earth existence in the unknown.
1: Yeah, um, and avoid that space junk. And, yeah, or avoid. capture some for a ransom.
0: Three, two, one.